1: and you've tuned in to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. We're going to be talking about women in the paramedic and firefighting professions and mental health with today's guest, Christy Warren, whose first book, Flashpoint, A Firefighter's Journey Through PTSD, is set to be released next month. Christy Warren is a retired fire captain from the Berkeley Fire Department in California. She has 25 years of service as a professional paramedic, and within that 25 years, 18 years as a professional firefighter slash paramedic. After being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress in 2014, Christy retired from the fire service. Since then, she's become a triathlete, competed, I'm sorry, completed the Escape from Alcatraz swim, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five times, and earned a bachelor's degree in business from Washington State University. She's a volunteer peer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat and hosts the podcast, The Firefighter Deconstructed. She lives in Pleasant Hill, California with her wife Lisa and dog Harriet. Christy Warren, Welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it.
1: No, I appreciate your time and thank you for your service. I know 25 years is a lot and we're you know digging into that a bit, but I just want to thank you here in advance of the show. So you were a paramedic and then a firefighter paramedic. Had you always wanted to be an EMT or a firefighter and how'd you become an EMT?
2: Well, actually I wanted to become a doctor. And I was going to school at UC Davis right out of high school and taking pre-med classes. And, you know, the first couple of years are like microbiology and chemistry and physics and you know, these kind of boring classes that have nothing to do with being a doctor at least in my eyes. And uh, I saw there was an EMT class. I just kind of randomly saw it on a board and I'm like, Oh, I'll do that. That'll be fun and get my hands on something. And so I started taking this EMT class and I finished the class and I needed something to do for the summer, and I saw in a newspaper they're hiring EMTs in Vallejo, California. And so I was like, that sounds like fun. I get to work on an ambulance. That would be actually incredible. So I applied, and I got the job, and I started working as an EMT and then did that for a little while, and then just fell in love with it and went to paramedic school and became a paramedic and then decided that this would be just way better than being a doctor and being in a hospital all day and looking at lab results. And it's like, this is just way more exciting. And so I, I pretty much dropped out of school to work full time as a medic. And, um, I just fell in love with it. Just fell in love with the whole first responder world.
1: And as a follow-up to that, I'm a paramedic. What inspired you to become a firefighter? You know, why'd you make that career move?
2: Well, you know, we run calls obviously with the fire department because you know when you dial nine one one, the a fire department, the when you're looking for an ambulance, the fire department comes also. And uh, so I saw what they did and watched them fight a lot of fire and extricate people out of cars and thought like that looks even more amazing than being a paramedic. I've always been athletic and played sports and really liked a good hard physical challenge and. I just was like, I got to do that too. And you can be a paramedic and be a firefighter. And so I started testing for fire departments and then got hired and just, yeah, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it.
1: The training process for becoming a firefighter is obviously very rigorous, to say the least. Did you have any particular challenges with it?
2: You know, the, the biggest challenge I had was I am small, I'm five foot six, I'm like 150 pounds, and I had to work really hard in the weight room uh, to be strong enough to do the job. I always swore I'd never be the weak link in the chain. You know, I didn't want anybody having to pick up my slack at all. You know, obviously a big giant, strong dude is going to be stronger than me no matter what I do, but also being small, you know, I had my advantages too, because I fit into all those small little crevices and cracks. And I spent a lot of time in attics and crawl spaces and windows. And, um, so yeah, so I, you know, the physical challenge was hard. And then I also, but I actually really relished that. Um That was, you know, probably the hardest, the hardest part. I, I mean, there's all kinds of hard parts, you know, to it, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a
1: good, it was all a good challenge. And then what eventually compelled you to join specifically the Berkeley fire department?
2: Well, I really liked, uh, working in kind of the inner city environment, I like being really busy. Berkeley was a really busy department. They were also known for having a very uh, strong EMS program. So, you know, I knew the paramedics would be strong over there. Um, I really like the size of the department. There's seven stations, about 140,000 people, you know, including the UC Berkeley campus. Um, they're small. The city's small itself. It's only 10 square miles, but it's very, very densely populated. It's like the second most densely populated city, you know, west of the Mississippi. Um, they have a lot of old construction, which means not a lot of um, fire protection in place. So they did fight a lot of fire. And old construction, I mean, I know this now, I don't really know it then, but old construction is a lot safer to fight fire in the new construction. Like you get what we call really good fires that aren't quite as dangerous as, you know, newer construction with all the synthetic, everything that burns us so much hotter and faster. Um, yeah. Berkeley was really in the, the, the size that I wanted to. I really didn't want to go work for a gigantic department and get lost in it. Uh, but this one was big enough and busy enough that I got to stay really busy and, and, there's so many target hazards too in Berkeley. We have so much, and we have the campus and we have the Hills and, you know, we have a high pressure jet fuel line that runs right through the East end of the city. And I mean, it just goes on and on, you know, big houses, little houses, you know, poor socioeconomic area, very wealthy area. It just kind of had everything, you know, so you could kind of go find whatever you really like
1: to do. You just touched on the hills. I know that there are specific wildland fire departments, but is that something that you would help out with as well?
2: Yeah, we you know we rarely got grass fires actually because the fog came in so much and so we didn't get very much and most of the city of Berkeley is actually you know concrete and asphalt. but we do interface with a pretty heavy duty wildland area. so the threat was always there. and so we had to be really good at it. Even though we didn't do it very often, which is kind of hard to do, but you know we had the huge, the big Berkeley Oakland uh, Hills fire back in '89 or '91, sorry '91. You know that just burned uh, just a tremendous amount of area, and um, so yeah, we had that wildland interface, so we always we always had to be good at it.
1: And it must depend on the community and the fire department. But describe your typical day as a firefighter and how your tasks and responsibilities changed as you were promoted.
2: So a typical day, you know, our shift change is officially at eight, but I would always get there about seven fifteen because after you've been on duty for 24, 48, 72 hours, there's really nothing worse than getting a call at quarter to eight and not getting to go home at eight o'clock. And then you, you're stuck until, you know, the call's done, which can be nine o'clock. So most people typically get to work early so we can uh, relieve somebody if they get that late call. Um, so, yeah, you get to work and change into your uniform and kind of sit down and, with your crew and talk about what we're going to do for the day. And uh, then we check out the rigs uh, when you're like, everybody kind of has different duties. The firefighter uh, does the they do like typically the house cleaning and clean toilets and all that kind of stuff. And then the driver, the apparatus operator, a lot of departments call them engineers. You know, they check out the rig and all the tools and make sure everything is ready to go. And then the captain, um, the captain, you know, might have a meeting, might have a bunch of paperwork to do, emails to answer, kind of more administrative stuff. And then, uh, you know, plan for doing training, plan a training for the day, that kind of stuff. And then um, I would always step in and help, especially the firefighter, you know, clean the house and, and do whatever needed to be done. Um, sometimes we got to work and headed off the training right away for a couple hours. You go down to the drill tower, and do training. Um, and then we run calls interspersed there. Obviously Berkeley was great. Cause it was, it was really busy. We were a very busy department. Um, four o'clock it's usually workout time. We'd work out exercise, you know, eat dinner. We, some stations eat together. Some stations kind of eat on their own. The smaller stations where there's just one engine and three people a lot of times they'll just eat on their own, but the bigger houses, which was what I preferred, we uh, we always sat down and ate together. Somebody was a cook for the day. and then um and then after that, it was like free time, and we you need to just do whatever you want, watch TV, go to bed, do whatever needs to be done. But like I said, there's always lots of call running in there. And then the stations that I worked at particularly ran a lot of calls at night. so we were pretty we were up all night
1: you've mentioned several times how much you love being a firefighter. What'd you like most about being a firefighter?
2: Oh, so much. I just, I love running calls. I loved that clarity that I felt, you know, especially when we were at a fire or, you know, critical call or, you know, like a big extrication, it just everything in the world just goes away. And it's just, it, it's just like a clarity. And it's the clarity that I experience. And I think a lot of people do, it's kind of like being in the zone or the flow state or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's like addicting, you know, they will call us adrenaline junkies. And I hear that word a lot. And it's, it it's true. Cause you do, you just, you get addicted to it. And, but it's not just the adrenaline It's it's just, I think it's the clarity that is brought in that moment and the rest of the world just, just melts away. So I just, I really, really love running calls. Yeah. I didn't, I went crazy at at a slower station, but, um, and I also missed, you know, I really, the camaraderie, um, I mean, we were really like a family where we fought like a family and, you know, we had disagreements and, you know, you're connected to the hip with these people for 24, 48 hours. And even if you were, even if you're working with somebody that you really didn't particularly care for, it was like, we still had each other's back and we still um, had a common goal and a common purpose. And it was kind of like, you know, even if things, people talk about, even if things are shitty at home, they could always go to work and, and find somewhere they belong and that they're needed and they're a part of. And um, I I really miss that a lot too.
1: And the flip side of that, would you like least about being a firefighter if anything?
2: Probably not getting any sleep. I really enjoyed, I mean, I loved running calls at night if they were good calls, like they were legitimate needed calls. Um, But, you know, not getting any sleep really, really wears on you. You know, people say, oh, your schedule's so great. You work two days on and then you get four days off. And it's like, well, yeah, the first two days you really walk around like a zombie and you just, you know, feel horrible. And just think of a night where you were up, where you didn't really go to bed or you only got an hour of sleep and then how well you function the next day. And then now do that over and over and over and over for 25 years or whatever. And it it really, it really messes with you. And so the the lack of sleep is, I think the part, I mean, I don't sleep incredibly amazing right now, but but yeah, I think that's the part that I um, definitely missed the least or didn't like the most, however you want to say it.
1: I might be jumping ahead a little bit here, but just sticking with the part about sleep you know, especially post-COVID, we read more and more studies about how important sleep is to mental health. Mm-hmm. And we know how strong first responders need to be, both physically and mentally, given all the challenges you, you face and you see again, personally and professionally. How do you deal with some of those things? With that lack of sleep that you had, in terms of being able to, to keep your, you know, keep your head on straight and focus on the job and what had to be done.
2: I think you just did it. You just did it because you had to do it. I remember somebody saying to me, like, I don't, I don't know how you you know, when you get woken up at three o'clock in the morning and have to go run a call, like, I don't know how you get up. And it's, it's like, you just, you have to, I, and I, th- I think it's almost like, I don't have kids, but I think it's f- similar to a parent and their kids, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, you hear your kid throwing up all over the place. You have to get up, you know, or your kid's getting up for anything. You have to get up. You just have to do it. So I think, you know, that's one way and, and you just keep moving forward. And I think it, it definitely adds up over time. And you know, sleep is so important for your mental health in that, you know, your brain, when your sleep is when your brain heals is when your brain like kind of cleans itself out. And when you don't get a chance to do that on a regular basis, just kind of in normal life, it's detrimental. And then when you have been on like horrific calls and seeing the horrible things that we see and your brain doesn't get a chance to clean itself out it is I think when it becomes really detrimental. And, you know, PTSD is not. You know, like emotionally, like oh, I just can't handle it anymore. It's like it's actually a physiological injury to your brain. Your brain changes shape. It changes the kind of chemicals it makes. Your like amygdala enlarges and is on like just rapid fire, which is your kind of your fear center. It's just on rapid fire all the time, and it's because it's been injured by all the trauma that it sees, and it's never had a chance to really kind of clean itself up and um, and reset. And so. You know, I think we just keep going until our our brain just can't, you know, take it anymore. And for me, when I got my PTSD is it really started hitting me when I moved from a really busy station that was up all night, pretty much every single night to a really slow station. I almost liken it to like I got off the treadmill and things started to settle in. It's like, you know, if you have an injured knee or foot or hip or anything and you're running on it you know eventually that pain you know unless it's really bad that pain a lot of times will go away like you can just keep ploughing through it because of endorphins and all that kind of crap but then as soon as you stop like and then the next day it hurts like hell and i really think uh that's what happened to me is is i got off the treadmill and things slowed down and um and then i could just it just started hitting me
1: you touched earlier about you know the typical day, and I put air quotes around that because I don't think there's really such a thing as a typical day for a, a first responder. No, yeah. You responded to a lot of emergencies over 25 years. Was there a particular type of call or some specific instance that were most difficult for you?
2: Well, kids are always really tough. Um, you know, we use we use humor and kind of rationalization to get through a lot of stuff. And it's pretty dark humor, and I think a lot of people be horrified by you know some of the the things that gets thrown around at the dinner table for us. But it's like, that's one way we cope, you know, and then rationalizing it. um, I know there's a better word for it, but like you say, take a drunk driver who crashes into a tree, you know, and is severely injured, you know, you say, well, they shouldn't have been drinking or somebody wasn't wearing their seatbelt gets ejected through the window or whatever. It's like, well, if they were wearing their seatbelt, they'd be fine. And so it's a kind of a way of taking the, putting the onus back on them and the responsibility on them So it's taken off of us and we can just kind of move on like, well, this is, you know, kind of their own fault. But when this, when stuff happens to kids, you can't do that. You can't use humor. That's, that's, we don't cross that line. And then, um, you know, kids don't really take part in their own demise. It's like kids just do what kids do. And it's usually the adults that are around them that, you know, that things will Can happen. And then things happen so fast. I mean, there's a million incredible parents out there whose kids have been severely injured because a parent turned around for two seconds to do something and the kid, I mean, they just move so fast. And so, so yeah, the kids are, kids are really, really difficult, you know, and then looking back to my whole PTS journey, the calls that really kind of haunted me were the calls where I felt helpless and where I couldn't do anything or I couldn't, you know, make a difference no matter how hard I tried. Those were the calls too that were really difficult.
1: When you and I first spoke, I mentioned someone who's become a good friend of mine who's been a firefighter for 17 years. And it's now been about two months ago, where I was on a call and found a dead baby. And that just hit him, which I can't imagine how it could not. Um, and then he just he didn't feel right for a couple of days. Thankfully, his his wife is a nurse. She said, Are you okay? He's like, Yeah, you know what? I want to get checked out. Went, had himself tested, whatever that involves or whatever that is. And then he actually took thirty days off from the fire department, and he's just sort of thinking about what his next steps are, whether it is is as a firefighter or something else. And so, as a you know, my wife and I have three kids. I just can't imagine a call like that, let alone the dozens of calls you probably saw, if not more, over your twenty-five years. You know, and to that point, obviously the job is very demanding. You know, you mentioned you work twenty-four hour shifts for several days in a row. How do you prioritize family, friends, and your off-duty life, so that you had to help you balance?
2: You know, that's a really hard one. And it's a hard one for a lot of people. You know, I, I'd get off of a 48 hour shift and, you know, the guys were like, Oh, come with us. We're going to go do this. And And I was, I felt so torn. It was like, I wanted to go be a part of that, but I'm like, I just spent 48 hours with you guys. I need to go home and spend time with my family. And it's so hard to, to not, it's just really hard. It's really hard to find that balance. And, you know, there's a fire department family and then there's your family. And, um, it's really, a lot of people, a lot of people struggle with it and some people do it better than others. And you just have to kind of really find your priority and, you know, like you say, and find that balance. I think for me, I, I was able to see, like, I just spent two days with you guys, like I love you, but I really don't want to spend any more time with you guys. I want to go home and see my family and be at home. And, um, so it it was, it was, it was a hard thing to do. I felt very torn. It was, You felt really, really torn. You know, the whole fear of missing out was a big one too. You know, all the guys are going away for whatever. And, um, but yeah, my, my family was really important to me. And, you know, when you retire, or you step down, they fill you in with somebody else in a heartbeat. And, you know, I mean, you're with your family forever. And so it's really important to to realize that early on.
1: I think you just summed up with the beginning of that sta- statement. You know, I love you guys, but dot, dot, dot. Right. Yep. No, that's perfect. Right. So you mentioned about retiring. You retire as a captain. So you're obviously promoted to the ranks during your career. What were your greatest strengths that helped you receive those promotions and the flip side of that, what were your weaknesses as a professional firefighter and how did you overcome them or compensate for them?
2: Um, my weaknesses were for sure that I was really hard on everybody. I was pretty hard on myself. I had, you know, I had this feeling that I had to be perfect or I was nothing. I had to be the best or I was nothing. So I was very competitive and I was very, yeah, it's just really hard on other people. If, I didn't think they were moving fast enough or thinking things through well enough, or, you know, we're missing a basic skill. I would tended to be hard on them instead of, um, you know, just like helping them, you know, through it. You know, I remember it took me a long time to realize, but uh, you know, like a a friend of mine that I worked with, I was complaining as a paramedic is everybody. I felt like everybody's so slow, like they're moving so slow. And I thought that, was a fault of all theirs. And she said, well, maybe you're just really fast. And I, you know, it's like, I couldn't, I never saw any value in myself. I always thought I was kind of crappy and lame. And um, so I never could see that if, Oh, maybe I was good at this and other people were a little bit slower at it instead of thinking that there was something wrong with them. If that makes, I don't, I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, but I was very hard on people, people, that would definitely be my weakness. I expected a lot out of everybody. I expected everybody to kind of care as much as I did and have um, have the certain strengths. And you know, it took me a while to realize that. Oh, everybody, you know, like almost like me being small was a strength in itself. That they had somebody to go through the small windows and crawl, you know, in the attics and crawl in the crawl spaces and um, instead of only big, you know, six foot tall, strong dudes being, you know, worthy in the fire service. Um, that was definitely my hardest time. I think my biggest weakness, um, I think my greatest strength was I cared a lot. I wanted things to be done, you know, as best as we could do them. I wasn't afraid to speak up. And I mean, I'm sure I spoke up too much, but, um, and I really cared about my crew and I really cared about the people I worked with, even though I don't think I sounded like it. I I really did. Like I, you know, just uh, do what I can for everybody. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, you learn a lot over all those years and, you know, it's different being in a leadership position in the sense that you feel like you need to be the stronger, you know, even stronger than everybody. And, um, you know, they say it can be lonely at the top, just because you don't feel like you can talk to as many people, because you need to show that strength and you don't want to show any vulnerability. And um, and it, yeah, and you're responsible, so you, your decision making is almost different because you don't, you're not just making a decision for yourself; you're making a decision for everybody else, in terms of like safety and stuff like that.
1: Well, I think you just did what you're supposed to in a job interview, and you turned your weakness into your strength. And you talked about how you're holding every, you're hard on everybody, but you're also holding everyone as accountable as you hold yourself. And as you start yeah. the show out, you're only as strong as your weakest link.
2: That's right. I was an asshole. <laughs> I was a real <laughs> asshole. Like, really, really, really. I was really hard on people. So it was, the there's, it is, but you can, you know, like somebody said to me, like, yeah, everybody knows that you care about everybody and you want to do a good job. And, but you, but they're getting tired of getting yelled at. You know what I mean? So I definitely.
1: Fair enough. Yeah. So according to the Federal Emergency Management Agency statistics, 5% of career firefighters, 11% of volunteer firefighters, and 12% of federal wildland firefighters are women. So in short, 9% of all firefighters are women. And as low as those numbers sound, they were much lower when you started out. There are stories about departments creating agility tests specifically to exclude women from the job. Did you ever experience any discrimination or barriers during your career?
2: You know what I will really have to say I did not. I was very fortunate. I think part of it was that I was very determined to, like I said, not be the weak link in the chain. I I worked out really hard and got really strong and fit and everything before the testing started. Like I didn't, you know, um, expect the departments to change your physical agilities for, you know, women in particular, it's like, no, if this is what the job requires, I'm going to work hard until I can pass it. Like it's up to me to be ready for these physical agilities and ready for the job. Um, I mean, I I definitely had men in the department come and talk to me and say, yeah, I don't really think women should be in the fire service. And, you know, I have to say, I I really don't blame them and their trepidation because here they see, you know, five foot six, me walking in, and um you know they're six feet tall 250 pounds like do they know that i am going to be able to drag them out of something am i able to get them out of something if you know something happens to them am i gonna be able to carry most of you know as much of the weight as i should in terms of you know like let's say we pick up a 350 pound person off the ground, are they going to be picking up like 300 pounds and I'm only gonna be able to pick up 50. And and so I, I understand their trepidation, especially when departments lower the standards. So more women can apply or more women can get hired. It's kind of they the the job demands are the job demands. They don't change. Just like you can't, if you lower the height of a fence, you know, that somebody has got to get over. It's like, well, the fences are six feet tall. You know, out there in the real world. So if you lower the fences to four feet tall, so more women can pass, then you're really just setting them up to fail because when they have to jump over a six foot fence, they're not going to be able to do it. So I'm really a firm believer in that. And when it became when it came to the men that said I don't believe women should be in the fire service, I would just say, well, I'm sorry you feel like that. And my determination was to show them that I could, and not just tell them that I could. I was like, well, when we go on calls and do stuff, you can. You can, you know, judge me then, but, but not, not right now. And, um, I was very fortunate. I never really, um, I never suffered really any discrimination. And I had guys saying that, you know, Christy's the toughest person here and, and and we're not worried about offending Christy. We're worried about her (laughs) offending us. So I kind of had that pretty, I mean, I'm kind of a salty person anyways, but, um, but yeah, so I really do understand, you know, a males trepidation, but uh, they also have to give us a chance to be able to do the job and show us show that we can do the job. And, um, and you know, and the other thing, too, is Berkeley is really set up for people to um, pass and not fail. And I think that's really important, you know, to be set up in that way to not make people fail or not see people fail, see people do well. And we certainly didn't pass anybody who shouldn't be out there. But, um, but yeah, just setting people up to fail is just—you know—was what some departments do. I know, especially if they're women, and that, that's just—they're just shooting themselves in the foot when they do that.
1: Yeah, you keep talking about your size being five foot six, you know, one hundred fifty pounds. You talk about you know the six foot two fifty firefighter. But you know, obviously, we you know there's a sort of a running joke of the police officer eating donuts. You know, twenty years into the into the career. I'm assuming that all firefighters were as fit as you as well. And I'm thinking that someone like you and your physical ability, you can be the first person carrying that hose at the front of the fire, as opposed to the six foot, 250 pound guy is probably not going to run as fast as you.
2: You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And there, there is definitely that, um, I don't know, stereotype, you know what I mean? That the big guy is going to be better guy. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you have, you know, the, we have the, we had this big, huge, strong dude who's just, you know, can lift a million pounds and he was awesome for breaking a door down. But after five minutes of, you know, like work, he was tough. He was done. He was toast. And, um, yeah. And so, yeah, you, no, you're absolutely right in that. And, you know, and they'll, people will be more, you'll, you'll see departments protect the guys that can't do the job way more than they'll protect the women who can't do
1: the job. That's definitely true. And what advice would you give to other women who are interested in pursuing a career in firefighting and how can they prepare themselves to overcome potential obstacles or challenges related to discrimination or bias?
2: Uh, Work really hard, Uh, physically work really hard, be yourself. Like don't, you know, if you cry and people want to give you shit, you know, forget them, just be yourself and do the job and, um, yeah, be ready to do the job and also like realize 100% that you belong there no matter what they say, you know, cause sometimes it's like, you know, these guys like to get away, you know, they're away from their wives and daughters and they can just be with the dudes and do what dudes do. And, but it's like, you know, this is a paid profession. This is, even if you're a volunteer, it's still, this is a professional environment This is not, you know, a camping trip with a bunch of dudes getting to say whatever they want. And so, you know, you absolutely have a right to be there, but you absolutely have to be, you know, part of the team and, and, and bring some strength to it. And, um, you know, don't ever give up your tool. That's something I learned. Some guy says, give me your tool. It's like, no, don't ever give up your tool. You just do the work and just, you know, realize that not that it's okay but guys talk to themselves different talk to each other differently that's a really important one like when i first started as a paramedic i was like my god these guys are like what the hell is wrong with them and then i just sat back and and i was like oh they're not just talking like that to me they talk like that to each other that's like that's just how these guys talk but with that said you know what i mean anything discriminatory or anything you don't feel comfortable with is is not right at all but I think I'm going around here in a circle. It's like, I guess my biggest thing is just show people you can do the job instead of telling people you can do the job and don't ask for anything extra that anybody else wouldn't get. And you, you absolutely deserve to be there. So that's it.
1: All right. Sorry. No, that's, that's fine. I appreciate it. So what do you see as the future of firefighting and how do you think the profession will evolve over time? And especially for women?
2: Um, that's a really good question. I, uh, we used to always say, and I think it's still true, is that, you know, the fire service is 150 years of progress completely impeded by tradition. There's so much tradition in the fire service, and I'm still not quite sure what, what that is, why it's holding on to tradition so much. Um, but it, it very much is, and it could progress a lot more, I think, than it has, and it still has a long way to go. Construction is really changing things. You know, so many more things are made out of plastic and, you know, people are using OSB board instead of plywood, you know, to build their homes and, you know, that burns just so fast and hot. And so, you know, the older like interior attacks, you know, the old like real construction, you know, was just made so much stronger than today. So firefighting has become a lot less dangerous. I mean, I'm sorry, it's become a lot more dangerous And so just the way we fight fire, I think is going to eventually evolve a lot and it won't be as um, like brute strength anymore. I think it'll be more about, there'll be a lot more technology in it and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's got a ways to go and it, it just keeps getting better and better. I think for women, the more women that become part of, you know, departments in the fire service and, you know, move into leadership positions. And so it's, it's changed a lot since then. You see a lot of, uh, female chiefs and female chiefs that departments really the rank and file really like and appreciate and, you know, look forward to their leadership. And, uh, so things are, things are definitely changing much for the better for the women is like more acceptable. Like little girls are seeing that they can become grow up and become firefighters too. Like when I was a kid, I, you know, Johnny and Roy on emergency 51 was my favorite thing in the world. And, but I never, there's no women in there. And so it, it just never dawned on me like that was something I could do. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, I don't know, you see a bazillionaire on TV and you never think that's something you could do because you just, that's like a whole different world. And so I think seeing, you know, little girls, seeing women in the job shows them or gives them that identity that they, oh yeah, I can do this job too.
1: Well, you read my mind a moment ago talking about technology being a big part of it. Uh, I started doing some work with an Australian based company that, that develops virtual reality training software for firefighters. You know, how do you see the training changing as the types of fires are changing based on the materials within those fires?
2: You know, that's really interesting because um, live firefighting training is really hard because it's so dangerous. And so it's really hard to, um, it's really hard to add that component into it. And that, cause that's kind of the part that, that gets people is, you know, like the danger of it and being in the middle of it and that whole adrenaline override thing that, you know, it's, it's like you need to be able to think and stuff but in, in the midst of that and that is so hard to recreate in training you know like they have all kinds of burn containers and you know they'll do ga- gas fires and you know you'll crawl in and have to go put the gas fire out and so that's really good for like moving hose and everything but you know there's no smoke is produced and the gas fires are so bright that you can see in a, in a real, real structure fire you know if you've got a house on fire and like the whole back end of the house is on fire when you make entry, you can't see a thing like you can see, you cannot literally see your hand in front of your face. And that adds so much more to the problem than, you know, just being able to move the hose through the house. And that's, I'm really interested to see what technology will do. And I mean, this is kind of going off on a tangent, but you know, like in the olden days, they didn't have SCBAs and they didn't have all that stuff. So they couldn't go very far into fires. And so and now we have, you know, we have SCBAs and we have, you know, flashes and all this protective equipment. So we can go really, really deep into the fire. And that's usually when we get caught in when when things happen. And so it's, it's almost like the more technology that comes out, the deeper we're going to be able to go. And the most the more trouble we're going to get into. And and, um, you know, and then all of that, all everything is only as good as the technology, you know, whether it works or not. when it, You know, like our radios fail. And, you know, without a radio, you're kind of SOL and, and for the longest time, not until like the last couple of years of my career, did we get waterproof radios, you know, that the radios would short out when they got really wet and you come out of a fire and you're soaking wet from all the water and everything. So, so anyways, um, it, it'll be really interesting to see because, you know, all the training burns that I've been in, it was like boring and because there was no danger there, there's no realism there, there's no, there's no threat and my body and my my brain was able to think very clearly because it, it didn't sense any danger, if that makes any sense. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I'd be really interested in, to see how that goes.
1: Now let's talk about what connected us. Let's go from fire captain Christy to author Christy. We talked about the book Flashpoint, A Firefighter's Journey Through PTSD, which chronicles your own experiences with post-traumatic stress and again is set to be released next month. Tell us a little bit about the book, just enough to make sure everybody buys it, and what prompted you to write it?
2: Well, I developed PTSD, and I struggled really, really hard because I was sure that I was the only one who had it, and at my department, everyone else seemed to be doing just fine. I'm like, why am I, out of 125 firefighters, the only one that's struggling? And I thought I was weak. And I was a failure, and all these just issues of shame and guilt. Just I was just flooded with it, and so it took me a really long time to ask for help. And I came very close to um, dying by suicide because I just couldn't take the shame, and I couldn't take the the symptoms that PTSD are. And I really. You know, once I got through all this on the other side, I really don't want anybody else to suffer alone. And I know when I was going through my issues, there were so many people or I should say there weren't there weren't there was nobody I could find to talk to or very much information I could find about it. I remember just like scouring for books like I just wanted to read a book on this. And the only book I found was written by Clint Marlachuk, who's an NHL goalie who had his throat uh, sliced by a skate and he almost died from it. And they threw him right back on the ice like six days later, as soon as his stitches were healed up enough. And so I read his book and it was the first time I ever felt like I wasn't the only one. And that feeling like I think saved my life. And I don't want anybody else to go through this alone. And there's so much more out there, but there still isn't enough. And there aren't enough departments out there that are doing anything about this. And I decided to write this book because I don't want anyone to feel like they're the only one and they can see what I went through. And I tried to be very, very vulnerable and honest and forthcoming with everything I went through. So people can read it and say, Oh my God, me too. Like there's somebody else out there who's gone through what I've gone through. This is how, and this is how I got through it. And, you know, I'm here to promise you that if you ask for help and stick with it, there is an amazing life on the other side. And, um, So, and I've always loved to write. I've kind of always thought of myself as a writer anyways. And then I just kind of started writing and I was like, wow, I have a book here and I want to get this out there. So, so people see, and then also for the general public, you know, they don't know what we do. And so that way they can, they can see what we do and kind of see, you know, the, the struggles that we have and, you know, in families or people who know first responders, they can they can just get a better idea of of what we do and what we struggle with.
1: You talked about vulnerability there a moment ago. How difficult or easy was it for you to write the book?
2: Well, it was not difficult for me to write the book in terms of vulnerability because I, I had gotten through the other side and I've become a very vulnerable person because that really is the key to freedom and happiness for me, at least. And, you know, I can just be myself and not have to worry about any of that. And, um, writing the book is hard because just because simply it's a lot of work, you know, there's the editing and like, and then the whole self doubt, like, oh, this is, sounds terrible. And then the more you write it and the more you revise it and the more you read it, the more you're like, oh my God, this is horrible. So that part of it was hard, just so much hard work and sticking with it. Um, but the writing of itself, I actually really enjoyed the writing of itself. i like I said, I really like to write. So that part wasn't very difficult. I did have to take steps back, like take a, a couple months off sometimes because I was just so inundated with PTSD, PTSD, and, you know, writing about these calls that I went on at work and things that happened to me and just the, you know, the feelings that I had while I had PTSD. Um, was so like, I just need to make sure I took good care of myself and take breaks from it. And, um, you know, and I still do that now because I have my podcast, you know, the firefighter deconstructed, which is about deconstructing us and talking about our vulnerabilities and PTSD and our mental health and everything. And there's times where it's like, I, I I just need a break from this and, and not be completely inundated in it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed writing it for the most part.
1: And where can our listeners and viewers find your book when it comes out next month?
2: They can find it anywhere that they find books. Um, Amazon, obviously Barnes and Noble. Um, So far, pretty much everywhere I've looked, you can buy it online, wherever you buy your books Uh, books, bookshop.org is a great place because they support indie books. Um, So yeah, it's, it's out there. It's, it's a regular, it's a regular book. It's out there. And um, so you can find it everywhere. Uh, I do have a website, Christy E Um, you can go there and, and order it from there. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it to come out.
1: And where can people find your podcast?
2: At um, Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, that's also there. Uh, the firefighter, it's um, yeah, the Deconstructed dot com. Um, yeah, anywhere, anywhere you uh, go for. I have about eighty six episodes out, and it's just me. I don't have a sound engineer or executive producer or. <laughs> or a coordinator or schedule or anything. It's just me. And, um, and I basically just have uh, first responders on like dispatchers, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, police officers, just kind of telling their stories. And it's really about, uh, again, it's also the like, yeah, I'm not alone. And people listen to that. And I've gotten emails and stuff from people saying, wow, I had no idea what was going on with me. and Now I know, and I'm going to get some help. And like I know I'm not the only one now. And um so yeah, it's it's uh it's a good thing.
1: Remind me after the show to connect you, we have a retired Bay Area police officer on the show in a couple of weeks. Um Oh
2: yeah, that'd be great.
1: So we'd love to connect you guys. He's a super, super guy. So we've talked about sort of the air quote, you know, day in the life of a firefighter. And again, you know, no typical day. What do you think of television show television shows like Chicago Fire? <laughs> I'm just going to pause there. I think your laugh sums it up. I'm going to let you take it from there.
2: So, uh, you know, there's been cop shows on forever. And, you know, you develop that like, wow, that's what it's like. And now, and I remember all the cops always complaining, like, no, that's not even close what it's like. And I, now I know how they feel because it's not really at all how how it is. Um, In fact, a a friend of mine has been uh, posing that we do a podcast where we play a chicago fire episode and talk about it while it's on just all of our laughing and our uh my wife watched that show for a while but she was not allowed to watch it around me because the show just made me so like pissed off because it's like no that's like not even close that's not how we do it that's not how it's done um i mean yeah it's good i mean i guess those shows are good just to be it's like recognized almost as like oh we've made it they made a television show about us um but yeah that's not how it's it's not how it's done. It's not how it is. It's not. Yeah, it's just those shows. I mean, I don't really wa- I don't watch them that much, so I don't really know exactly. I remember that show Rescue 911. I don't know if you remember that show with William Shatner. And that show has really made it tough on us because everybody in that show lived. You know, obviously, they're only going to put good stories on. But, you know, kind of gave this false sense to people that, you know, if we call 911 fast enough and they get here fast enough everybody's going to live. And it's like, no, that's incredibly rare. You know what I mean? To bring somebody back like that. And so anyways, yeah, those shows are um, pretty ridiculous. I will say there, there's one show that's uh, it's over, but you can still find it everywhere. It's rescue me by Dennis Leary. That show is tremendously realistic. It, I mean, it really is. It's funny because I used to watch it before I got PTSD and I say, well, Cause it's about New York firefighters and, you know, specifically after, you know, kind of the aftermath of nine 11. And um, I remember watching it and saying, yeah, the show's very, really realistic except for the ghosts that he sees all the time and, and the weird dreams that he has. And then it's like, I went through PTSD and I was like, Nope, that part's real too, but it's very, it, it's really, really well done. And it's really, um, you know, like they'll have fire scenes and, you don't see them. You just hear something clunking around in the dark and that's them trying to, you know, rescue somebody out of in a, in a house fire or something like that. And and that's how it really is. So that, that shows very realistic. So anyways, yeah.
1: Thumbs up from you for that one. Duly. Yes. Did your PTS change the way you approached your job or work as a firefighter and how do you manage triggers or stressful situations on the job?
2: So I got PTSD and I kept working and I didn't, I mean, I was told I had PTSD, but, uh, I thought for sure I could fix it myself and I could beat it and I didn't need any help. And, um, and it, it just things, everything just kept getting worse. I, I started, I'm not, I've never been a crier unless I was really, really angry. I, but I never was a crier at all. And I started crying at work over nothing calls. Um, you know, I just had all these horrible symptoms that just continued to get worse and continue to get worse until one day I finally was like, if I don't, stop going to work right now. I'll kill myself. And, um, so that's when I finally decided to get some real help. And so, uh, I couldn't, that was the whole thing was I couldn't manage anything anymore. And I was being triggered by everything. And every time the tones go off at work for a call, it could be, you know, like somebody sprained their ankle and my, I would have the same physiological response to, you know, officer been shot or, you know what I mean? just something, some horrible call. My body would have the same exact physiological response. And, and you know, when I got PTSD and I took time off work, um, I was determined I was going to go back. But then as I started going further and further down my path of recovery and getting better and better, I realized that there's no way I can go back to work. I could go. But I had no doubt that I could do my job. I could still, you know, run into burning buildings and do everything I needed to do but that my brain couldn't take any more hits, you know, it's the same as, you know, like you have a blown out knee that's been put back together and you go back and you, you know, you play, try to play football for a while longer, but then, you know, just one small hit or twist in your knee and you're going to be completely done. And that's what I realized that if I want to have any kind of future, then I, I need to stop taking those traumatic hits. And, um, and so that's why I just started, you know, decided to step down and you learn, you know, and through your recovery and getting help, you learn to manage your triggers and they don't like they, you know, I still can get triggered, but they don't take a hold of me like they used to. And I still can have a really bad nightmare and I'll wake up and, you know, be like, Oh, that was just a bad nightmare. It doesn't, it doesn't take over my day. It doesn't take over my night anymore. And um, yeah, my brain is just, like I said, it's a physiological injury and it's just, I've really given it lots of time to heal and it, it's just healed a lot.
1: That's great to hear. I've seen statistics that indicate seventy percent of firefighters and EMS personnel have symptoms of depression, while ninety-two percent of surveyed firefighters said stigma was a the reason that they were unwilling to get help. What do you make of those numbers? Too high? Too low? Just about they're right?
2: Horrible. They're horrible. Yeah, no, the numbers are uh, absolutely about right, and um, but it just breaks my heart. You know, we are more likely to die by suicide than in the line of duty, and that's just uh, that's atrocious, and it's majority of it's because of the stigma you know i i really truly believe that the majority like i mean i have no data for this but i would say like 99 percent of of first responders who die by suicide don't actually want to die they just want the pain to stop they just want all the stuff in their head to stop and the the physiological feelings to stop and and the reason why they don't stop is because they're afraid to ask for help because they're afraid of looking vulnerable and weak and they see you know this physiological response and an emotional weakness and so they're afraid to ask for help because we are so ingrained that we are the helpers we are the problem solvers we are the strong ones you know we we take the hits and save other everybody else you know we stay awake for 48 hours to you know to help people and and we 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 are the ones that are supposed to be the strong ones and it's it's just because we don't want to ask for help and if these people if we can get rid of that stigma that you know, asking for help takes a ton more guts and strength than not asking for help that if people would only realize that, you know, and so that's that's one reason why I mean there's a part of me who'd like to never talk about PTSD again and just get on with my life, but um I just can't stand these numbers. Like just it breaks my heart that anybody should die by suicide or anybody should struggle, and everybody's anybody's family should struggle, and the kids are so affected and spouses are so affected and and it's like, if we would just talk about this and get rid of that stigma, then, you know, there's no stigma with, you know, blowing your knee out at work and having to ask to go to the doctor and have surgery and take care of your knee. There's no stigma in that. So why is there a stigma with asking for help when your brain gets injured? Like just, yeah, it just breaks my heart. It really does.
1: You and me both. And that's why we have great people like yourself on here helping get that word out. So, Christy, we have just a few minutes left. I'm going to turn the microphone over to you. As another professional podcaster, <laughs> what's the most important message you'd like to leave with our audience today?
2: That you're not alone. Uh, there's so there's so much help out there. This this job, it, you know, I used to always think that you know all the calls that I've been on in 25 years, it's like no, that wasn't that big a deal because there's always somebody who had it worse. There's always a, you know, police officers out there who have been shot or their partner was shot and killed right in front of them, or they'd been trapped, you know, the list goes on and on of things that I could think of where people had it worse than I did, or, you know, they had a more legitimate reason to struggle. And, um, it's just, it, that's just not the case. It, it's, you know, we tend to minimize, you know, what we've seen, what we've done, or, you know, I mean, you have a, whatever you get physically injured in any other, any other way. And we're always like, you know, Oh no, it's not that big a deal, but it's like, but it is a bigger deal. I look back on my career and now I say, Holy crap. Like I cannot believe what I've seen in what I have done. And, and we, even if you work for a small department and there's not a whole lot out there in terms of calls or anything, you still have seen what you have seen. And you are not alone there's so many there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people suffering and that are gonna suffer too and you're you're just you're not alone and you're not the only one and you need to ask for help there's help out there and life is so much better on the other side i mean i can honestly look back and say that ptsd was the best thing that ever happened to me because it made me deal with a lot of other stuff and i just i'm i'm very happy now and life is really really good you just got to ask for help.
1: Christy Warren, retired firefighter and author of Flashpoint A Firefighter's Journey Through PTSD. Thank you for your service and thank you so much for being here with us today.
2: Chris, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for doing your podcast too and helping people. Yeah, you're helping people so much. So I can't thank you enough for doing this. I appreciate, I appreciate it.
1: And can you find her book at christyewarren.com? That's christy with a C H E Warren.com. I'm Chris Meek, run right of time.